relationships. Our lives revolve around them. Family, friends, work or romance. They are complicated and messy. And don't always work out like we want. God made us for each other. Maybe he can show us a better way to be together. This is not your average relationship talk. How's everybody tonight? Just in case you were confused, um, I'm Craig and this is Michaela. And uh, we've been married 31 years next week. Wow, he yeah, got so it. Yeah, so there you go. So that's a good start. So we're going to tonight be talking about uh, the roles of women and men in the life of the church. And uh, over the years, years as in centuries, this has been a subject that's always challenged uh, the church because the roles of women and the roles of men uh, in society have often been plugged as different roles that we play. And uh, yet there's so much in Scripture that talks about us being unified in unity under God's leadership and under God's authority and yet there are some scriptures that would say we have to look at our diversity rather than our unity. And so what we're going to do this, morning, uh, this evening is we're going to make our way through some scripture. Uh, Michaela's got some stories, of course, because being a woman in leadership, she's got her own story to tell about some of the challenges that she was faced. Um, but today we're going to touch on some of the uh, more challenging parts of scripture. Given 30 minutes, we have very little room and time to sort of dig too deeply, but we trust that you'll get a bit of a feeling for what it is that we're about. And so um, I'm going to ask Michaela to open in prayer, and then we're going to hook into it. Mm. Lord, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak about this subject, which so many wrestle with. But Father, I pray that as Craig and I speak, Lord, that you will open hearts and minds and ears to hear, Lord. And I pray that your spirit will be upon each and every one of us as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. <clears throat> well, Michaela and I have an um, egalitarian view of, of leadership. And that means that uh, we see men and women being equipped equally by God to be able to serve in ways that God calls us to. So that means that uh, whatever the, the gifting is, that's the place that you have to head towards. Okay, And it's not defined by whether I'm a male or a female, uh, what age I am or what education I have. We, we see that God calls, God equips, and therefore he empowers. And uh, throughout Scripture, we find that uh, not only are there women and men, of course, but uh, women are found in authoritative roles throughout Scripture. And uh, when we look at Scripture as a whole, and this is the big picture, what we're going to find is that there are, there are enormous ways in which women hold these significant responsibilities in the life of God's economy. And, uh, of course, Adam and Eve, you know, where would Adam be without Eve? Okay, the world wouldn't have lasted Probably very long, about one generation, <laughs> and that would have been the end of it. That's right. Uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abraham's credited as the father of faith, but when you drill down into the story, you find that his wife Sarah, she's the one who bore this child of a promise. And so, therefore, they were in it together. Um, we see people who were uh, significant in battle and in leadership, like Deborah in the book of Judges. Uh, we find other great stories about women like Naomi, uh, Esther, Hagar, Ruth, uh, Hilda the prophetess, Miriam. 
And then we move into the New Testament, and we've got, we've got Anna, who we meet in the temple. Uh, Anna, of course, was this prophetess, this woman who, who, who spent her whole life in the temple praying and leading and teaching. Uh, Mary and Martha, the sisters. Uh, and then we move into the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and we find Lydia. Uh, we find Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and a wife, but it's Priscilla, the wife, who's mentioned first. Uh, as we can uh, see that she is the primary leader and teacher out of this couple. Uh, there's Phoebe and Junia, the apostle. She was called an apostle. Uh, Tryphena. And of course, at the outset of the Gospels, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, the most blessed of all women. And so we find that there are these women of significance within the Scriptures that are there to tell us and to show us just how important <coughs> women are to God. And particularly when we see the liberation that Jesus brought to women and how important they were in his disciple-making role. Uh, some of the encounters that he had with women were the most profound and most powerful, and it was women who demonstrated the most amount of faith more often than not. And so we're looking at this from an angle of saying the whole big picture of Scripture yells out to us about women and men being in partnership, reflecting the goodness and the glory of God. Mm. The thing we've got to keep in perspective, though, above all else, is the scripture in Luke 4, 18 to, 6, 18 to 19, actually. And it actually comes from Isaiah 61 in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This verse, we can actually liken to the Magna Carta. Now, if those of you who don't know what the Magna Carta is, it's probably the first document that was signed centuries ago in the reign of King John. Um, it's probably considered the first civil rights document. Um, and it actually proclaimed for, for human freedom. This document was written up by lots of barons because they could see the people being oppressed, and they wrote it up for the king. It placed England on the road to a democratic state and introduced the lawyers of England to the concept of human rights as we know it now. You know, it may even come from this particular passage in Luke, where Jesus is saying that he came to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and release the oppressed. And that includes women. We no longer live under the curse from Genesis when we accept Christ. So, one of the things we find about Scripture is that uh, it has this, this, this overwhelming sense of, of like being like a river. And it's journeying towards the ultimate return of Christ. In the book of Revelation, we find that. And, and so we've got this, this stream, this momentum going along. And we, and we can see ourselves in the story along the way. And then the challenge comes to us because we've got two sets of scriptures, both written by Paul, one in Corinthians and one in, second, in First Timothy, which um, stand against this flow of scripture. And it's like we do a U-turn at this point because we say, okay, here's some really, really powerful pieces of Scripture, and uh, they tell us that women have a different role in the life of the church than what it is that we thought uh, egalitarianism or equality would bring. 
And so the first one we're going to have a, have a bit of a quick look at tonight is this one, 1 Corinthians 14. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. <gasps> Puts me out, doesn't it? It does, dear. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, all of you women who've spoken to each other coming here tonight, whilst you've been in church, <gasps> you're, out of, you're in trouble. Okay? Because we're in church and you're not allowed to talk. Okay, so here we've got something that is, all of a sudden, it's just, Grace, you're in trouble. <laughs> All of a sudden, we've got something that just seems to contradict this flow, this flow of, uh, of, of freedom and the flow of, of setting people free. And, uh, and yet, what we've got to do is we've got to look at this in its context. In its context, and this is where the challenge comes for us looking at the bigger picture, in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've already got men and women being affirmed as people who prophesy, Okay. You know what we mean by prophesy? It means that you speak out, speak forth what you believe is the Spirit of the Lord speaking upon you and through you to bring a word of encouragement to the life of the church. And so we've already got this, this picture here of uh, women prophesying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which precedes these few verses that we've got here. So all the way along, Paul is saying, women, you're allowed to prophesy, you're allowed to speak out with confidence about what it is that you believe God is saying, and that is in a public setting. Then all of a sudden, Paul changes his mind, it appears, and he drops this in with saying, women should remain silent in the churches. What it is is a specific context there where Paul is trying to address what is a, um, a shifting culture amongst the, the tension between the Greeks and the Jews. Remember, he's in Corinth now. And Corinth is a, is a place where there's just this melting pot of cultures. And this church is new. And so you've got people who have come out of an old Judaistic system. They understand the Old Testament law. And then you've got Greeks who have come from a, uh, a pantheistic worldview where they've been worshipping Greek god, gods. And, and nature and the like. And they've come into this setting, <clears throat> and it would be quite expected for people to be asking questions when the teaching is going on. Now, we all sit here quietly, whether we understand what I'm saying or not, because that's what we're indoctrinated to do at school. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, you just sat there in school, didn't understand a word the teacher was saying, but I sat there quietly. No, you went to sleep. Yeah, well, probably. But the thing is that... Um, that what we did was we would, uh, um, we would listen and we would not make comment. But what was happening here, and this is what Paul was jumping on, he's saying, listen, when you're in a teaching scenario, you woman, you've got to be quiet. And if you've got something that you need to ask, don't go asking it in the middle of the lecture because that disrupts everybody. You need to go home, talk to your own husband about what it is that is concerning you, and therefore you will be able to learn what it is without upsetting the, the meeting itself. Okay, so this in itself is not a, a huge statement that simply says women and men are, are separated and, and are therefore men can speak and women can't. It's just simply addressing a cultural problem that was generated out of a mixed audience coming together where some knew and some didn't. Okay, so again, we can't drill down too much tonight on this one, but I want to move on to one that's, um, again, uh, similar 
but different. It says here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Therefore, I, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, ordering themselves, sorry, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Okay, the first thing that I've got to say is that out of these few scriptures that are here, these seven verses, the one that has the imperative in it in the Greek, that means that this is an insist you must do, comes to us in the very first sentence. It says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. That is an imperative. So if any men come into church tonight and did not lift their holy hands and did not pray, you are in trouble with Paul. Okay? You're in trouble. Now, I was really impressed that Darren actually invited us all to lift our hands at one point because that might have actually captured some of the men and they got, got let off the hook when they lifted their hands. Okay? Okay, but lifting holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, there's a giveaway sign here. This anger and dispute is actually a part of the underlying challenge that uh, Paul was addressing in, this, uh, in this, this church, which is in Ephesus. He's writing to Timothy, but the church is in Ephesus. And I, I want to I read to you from the first chapter of 1 Timothy. This is what Paul says when he first opens up this conversation with the, uh, the church in Ephesus under, under Timothy's charge. Um, he says here, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or, or what they so confidently affirm. So there's Timothy's opening shot. There's his context. Okay? He's saying, in this church, we've got controversy. We've got controversy because there are illegitimate teachers trying to impose their will and their way upon this young church in Ephesus, okay? And if we turn to 2 Timothy, which remember, this is writing to the same church, to the same person, essentially about the same problems. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is what Paul has to say. And this again helps us understand the context. He says here, but mark this. Okay, so he says, mark this. In other words, take special attention to this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasting, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, and without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. And then Paul says this, they are the kind who worm their way into the homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, 
always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul's addressing not only a group of uh, false teachers, but false teachers who have somehow managed to get their wily way into the homes and into the lives of some women. And the context there, again, is that these women were making themselves available to these teachers and to teach these women were being taught in their homes. Okay? So we've got dispute, and we've got anger, and we've got deception, and we've got false teaching going on. And that's one of the big things that the Apostle Paul is trying to address in the church in Ephesus by writing to Timothy, the pastor, saying, you've got to work this out. And so here he is. Um, addressing this, and he says, Therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the woman to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Mm, in those days in Roman, in Roman times, the woman... Their hairdos were incredible, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. I mean, and they, and they were adorned with gold and pearls. and Yeah, and it proved that they were a woman of leisure, woman had more time, and, uh, and therefore were women of, of, of kept means. Mm. And it was these women that were being um, subject to these teachers who had come in because these women had time on their hands to listen. And then so, therefore, Paul goes on to say, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So let's just stop there for a second. What Paul is talking about here is these women who have been exposed to this false teaching and have been, as he said, become gullible. These are the women whose Paul is actually addressing here. He's saying to these women, that you have to be, to, Paul, to Timothy, sorry, that you have to be very careful of these women because they have absorbed this false teaching and we shouldn't be allowing them to be speaking in our church contexts. They have to be quiet. They have to be submitted to the overarching teaching that is coming through Timothy and via the Apostle Paul, okay? And then he goes on to say some rather unusual things. He says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay, so he's talking about deception here. What Paul's actually doing is he's drawing an illustration from the very first part of Genesis where Adam and Eve both sinned, but it says that Eve was deceived first. Okay? What he's saying here is Eve is being deceived, and these women, these women in your church, they too are like Eve, and they're being deceived as well. Okay? They're being deceived as well. So this isn't, don't read this out of context, because this will just say it looks like all women everywhere are second-class, easily deceived people. The simple truth is men can be deceived just as easily as anybody else. Mm. You don't have to be a woman to be deceived. The issue in those days, too, was that women often got married at age 12 or 14. And so when they got married, they stopped learning. They stopped going to school. And so if you think of your cognitive behaviour or your cognitive learning at stopping at age 12, what do you think is going to happen? If my learning stopped at 12, I'd be singing ABBA songs. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> <laughs> Abba was tops when I was 12. I'd be good at woodwork, and I'd be absolutely obsessed with playing rugby. There you go. That, <laughs> that says it pretty all. Pretty much where I am now, I suppose. <laughs> That's all right, honey. <laughs> but just finishing off that verse there, it says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. You know, unless you've had a baby, you're not being saved, okay? That's what it literally says, isn't it? Women? Which is so wrong. Which in itself, given that, one in ten women will struggle to conceive even if they're in a relationship to do so, and never alone a single woman. Uh, a more literal rendering of this comes from um, a book I read many years ago, actually co-written by Lauren Cunningham, um, called um, Why Not Woman? And a more literal translation of that would say, uh, but women will be saved through the birth of a child. Women will be saved through the birth of a child. That's an allegorical statement, isn't it? A picture, an illustration of whom are we talking about there? Mary's child, Jesus. Woman will be saved through the birth of a child if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. In other words, carry on being a Christian woman. And this birth of a child will set you free too. Okay? It's a beautiful verse. In fact, these verses, when they're put in their context, um, actually are liberating for women. Because the very first thing it says there in verse um, 11, it says, a woman should learn. A woman should learn. Okay? And then he just talks about the correction there that's needed in this particular context because of these women who were, who were who'd been caught up in this deception and he's putting them in their place. And when you start putting these things in their right place, what you find is that this, this river starts to flow again. This river starts to flow and all of a sudden, you find that we're in a place where men and women are working side by side, fulfilling the call of God that's upon their lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and yet we are so caught up often in our cultural imperatives, where we're trying to project upon people what it is that we think Scripture should say. And this comes out of a, a cultural context from, from centuries and layers of different ways in which we've interpreted the roles of men and women. Mm. It actually comes down to two words, and I'm going to write them up here. One is called, one is eisegesis, big stuff that we learn at Bible college, (laughs) and exegesis. Now, eisegesis is actually, it's putting into the text something that is not there. Exegesis is about taking out of the text what is actually there. And it can become so easy for us to use eisegesis instead of exegesis um, and read into the Bible our own prejudices, our own assumptions, and I don't have enough room, (laughs) and our own traditions. And that's what happens when we use this. And too often, preachers, teachers of the Bible use this instead of this. And that's where we can go wrong. We end up moving towards what we want it to say, not what it actually says. Exegesis is 
taking a really good look at the whole context, the, 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 the culture behind it, the history behind it, and taking out what it actually means. And unfortunately, we don't know Greek. Um, I remember Craig learned Greek for two weeks and decided to give it up because it was really complicated. <laughs> but understanding the Greek, the English language does not have enough words to explain the Greek. When you look at uh, uh, cultural shifts over the years, like slavery, slavery was eisegesis, okay? Because you'd read in the New Testament how you should treat your slaves properly. So people would say, well, that means I'm allowed to have a slave. Is that right? So that's what eisegesis looks like. You mm. read into the scriptures what it is you want to say. Uh, let me show you something that was um, uh, in, in the... Um, oh, we'll just move on to this... Uh, this next one over here about this scripture. Sure. Yeah. yeah, another example is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it's got wives and husbands. Too often, a lot of um, scholars have actually rewritten, well, not rewritten the Bible, but added headings and titles or breaks in the passage to get across what they feel is right. None of these, um, see where it says wives and husbands? This is Ephesians 5.20, 21. Uh, see where it says wives and husbands? That's a commentator's comment. Okay, that's not it in the original. It's not in the Bible. All of this not would have just been works. one huge sentence. Okay? But the person who, who wrote this one, this is the NIV. This is from a Bible that I bought about 20 years ago. It starts off, it finishes this little sub-paragraph sub here. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you're going, okay, that's the end of that. And then you're going to start a new heading. We're going to look at what it means to be a wife and a husband. It starts off, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. All right? So you can see how it is that they've, the commentators, gone and broken it up. I bought a Bible 18 months ago. It's called the New NIV. So it used to be the New International Version. Now it's the New New International Version. <laughs> okay? And uh, show you what they've done. Somebody must have told them off because they've uh, changed it. It's instructions for Christian households. And uh, they run those two verses together. And it makes a lot more sense. See, it bends your thinking, doesn't it? Just because of what we as men have included in there. Yeah. So when we start a, a view of uh, looking at marriage or men and women, and it starts off with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, there's a starting place that looks like equality, doesn't it? And it moves on to then say, yeah, husbands submit, uh, sorry, wives submit, and uh, that generates respect and and husbands are to love. And psychologists will tell you that there are two completely different forms of appreciation that a husband and a wife will give to one another. A woman needs love, and more than love, a husband needs respect. Okay, so we're talking about love and submission. Those two things are the way in which we've been created to receive affirmation from one another, love and respect. So this, again, these verses are talking about an equality Mm -hmm. Not a not a hierarchy. You know, um, I've actually heard a well-known preacher, um, I won't mention names, say, oh, sure, women can write and teach, but not preach from the stage, as they will be a distraction. Can you believe that? That, my friends, is one of the weakest theological arguments I think I've ever heard, and it actually says a great deal about the preacher, as far as I'm concerned. Because I would suggest that it's actually his problem, not woman's, 
and that he certainly doesn't know woman or chooses not to. And I wonder if he actually knows how to exegete the scripture properly. I thought you'd look good in a burqa. Well, yeah, if you read that scripture and say women shouldn't preach from stage, that's what I should be wearing. Well, you might lust after you. Yeah. That's right, so a burqa oh, would be good. <laughs> that's what he was saying, wasn't it? Oh, I know. Huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. But together we are reflecting God's glory, okay, together. And we go right back to Genesis for this. Remember what Genesis tells us. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So male and female, together, we reflect God's glory, God's image. Okay? And that's, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a union that somehow, dynamically, somehow, divinely, reflects the image of God. Now, we can look at that singularly and say within marriage, but uh, when we look at it, it talks about men and women together. It talks about a community where people are equally valued and uh, we all bring our strengths and our weaknesses to the party, but mutually we're able to be able to reflect the glory of God. And so there's something really, really beautiful about these verses because they give to us a picture of what it is that we are supposed to be generating together. Yeah, Michaela's mm. going to... Uh... Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey. About 15 years ago, I was working um, for the Rural Bank, um, but volunteering um, constantly at BBC, filling lots of gaps. Um, and in those days, we only had on staff Craig um, as the senior pastor, um, a part-time youth pastor, and Yvonne Barnes, who supported him administratively. Um, the elders approached me, and they asked me if I'd be willing to come on board part-time in the areas of pastoral care and integration because they felt there was quite a large gap there and Craig was getting worn out. Um, but get this, they hadn't talked to Craig about it. And they believed in women in church. You see, and they believed actually in women in leadership. And this church has had woman elders right from the beginning. And these guys wanted me to understand that I was being asked to come on board because of my gifts and what I could bring, not because I was Craig's wife. At first, I actually said no, um, as it came as a bit of a surprise, and I needed to work through what it could actually look like because I didn't want it to be perceived, perceived as this power couple. So I, play, I really prayed. Hey, it was a long time praying. And I really believed that as a woman and the senior minister's wife, that there was a way to minister as a woman, in a womanly way, without having to act like a man. And four months later, the elders came back to me again, and this time I said, yes. But it has actually been a journey. It was my path to grow into the role today that I am, but I had to overcome a whole heap of things as I worked through eventually doing nearly every job in the church to where I'm situated now. I started the pastoral care and the systems and things that happened there, soul food, kaimanga, time out, integration, built more into missions, 
worked in youth and children, ran and built up the music team, and then started building what we now know as the production and creative areas. In all of those areas, I had to learn hard and fast and overcomes people, overcome people's perceptions of me and become known for who God had made me to be, not just because I'm the pastor's wife. If we go back to, um, to Genesis and we find how, how the, uh, the curse came upon men and women as a result of the fall, we find some interesting things there that we should comment on while we're here. Um, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring I hate snakes. and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then he turned to the woman and said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay? So notice those last two sentences there? They talk about the result of the curse. Now, roll the clock back 150 years when the medical fraternity invented uh, anesthetic. Yeah, Mm. anesthetic. Yeah, not not antiseptic. Anesthetic that made you feel less pain. There was a raging debate in the medical fraternity as to whether they should actually allow women to use anaesthetic during labour. Because in doing so, they were offsetting the result of the curse of the fall. Can you see their argument with Scripture there? Now, to me, the whole thing about the cross is that the curse is broken. So anything that would help women in childbirth overcome labour pains is a positive thing. And then we move on. Yeah, amen, says Michaela. Okay. Um, let's not go there. Sorry. Yeah. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is part of the curse. Okay, this hierarchy is part of the curse. And so therefore you see again this stream of scripture that moves away from this curse, trying to redeem humanity, redeem the relationships between men and women. You know, the last thing we want to be doing is putting back into place um, a hierarchy where your husband lords it over you. Okay, that's not what we're about. We're saying the cross has broken the curse of, of, uh, of, of, of the original sin and has restored us in relationship with God and relationship with one another. And so for me, this journey is all about um, affirming the role of men and women. And the thing, the beauty that I love about church life is to be able to be in a place where I can just see a person who is gifted, doesn't matter whether men or women, and just say, let's get behind this person's gift. Let's get behind this person's gift and celebrate what it is that they bring for God to us. Now, we often have had uh, Monica preaching here on a Sunday night. Yeah? She's great. Monica eh? is fantastic. She's actually really unwell tonight. Mm. She's really, really crook. But, uh, you know... um, Oh, God, have your way, have your way, have your way. Isn't she gorgeous? Yay, Mon. Yay, Mon, you know. uh, She's got this leg that responds to her She's watching at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll be hating me for now. (laughs) But, um, 
But what a fantastic gift she has of communication and exhortation. She brings it, you know, and we walk away so encouraged and so blessed. And, and there are just, there are women filling these roles all around the planet. And, and for me, this is the most important thing, is to find the gift. Um, there was a season some years ago now, I've got to say, it was around about 10 years ago, maybe even longer now, oh. where on staff, um, we had to really work at balancing up the, uh, the numbers on the staff. You know, we talk about equal men and women. Well, there were seven of us on staff, and I was the only guy. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, we had to really well, work at that. what can I say, woman? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I'll tell you what, the ladies got the job done. They were, they were, they were fantastic. But um, <clears throat> I was looking, it was looking a bit like Craig's harem there for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, which is not the sort of thing you want to encourage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that time's marching on. We've got a little bit more to say. Are you guys okay with this? You yeah, all right? we're nearly there. You were nearly there, yeah. But I want to bring up a particular woman in the Bible that I consider a bit of a mentor, actually, as I've studied her life, Deborah. And she was in the book of Judges. Now, this woman was incredible. She had all the gifts you could think about, but the big thing was that she was a judge in Israel and... She was also a prophetess. She was a leader in, the, she was the leader of Israel, which I won't go into explain um, why. But the, um, in those days, you know, women often had no rights. And they were the property of their husbands, were often considered second class citizens. I'm losing my voice again. And were often really just devalued. So the fact that she was a judge was amazing in itself. But she was also a prophetess. Now, she was bold and brazen in her faith. And she teaches me how to lead as a woman. She teaches me how to speak honestly, yet lovingly. Lead kindly, yet strongly. And most importantly, how to live, love, and lead willingly. She was powerful, yet prophetic. Strong, yet sensitive. And incredibly humble when she gave credit to others. She responded to the call of the Lord and helped Israel reclaim what they were actually entitled to. And I know there are some amazing biblical characters in the, in the, in the um, whole Bible, how to be smart, how to listen and hear the voice of God. But then there was Deborah. And man, this woman had everything. And she was a woman. She was entrusted to be the mouthpiece of God. Now, God had given her numerous gifts, and that is what we need to focus on, not our genders. Does that make sense? Mm. There's no delineation between men and women in the distribution of these gifts. And if we look at 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about these spiritual gifts. You can read that at home, when you go home. But it says this, the body is a unit, meaning the church, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Amen? Amen. Deborah was a leader who led Israel with wisdom. Now, that was one of the many gifts that God had given her, but it also states she was a prophet. She led men, and one of them we know was Barak, the leader of the Israelite army. And if we look back at Corinthians... It goes on to state in verse 24 and 26, but God has combined members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it 
so that there should be no division in the body and that its parts should be made equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now, does that actually sound like inequality to you? No. I know, it doesn't to me. Yeah. One of the things I can do as a man is challenge other men. Um, In some circles, for some guys, uh, the thought of having a woman boss or a woman leader uh, can be a little bit hard to handle. There's a sense in which for some men, and I've spoken to them, they feel emasculated if a woman is... Big word. Yeah? Well, (laughs) look it up on Google. No, don't. emasculated, um, if they have somebody who's a woman who's got authority over them. And sadly, this will happen in the church as well. Women have just as much ability to be able to hear the voice of God and to be able to fulfill his calling upon their lives as a man does. And so when a woman will come to me or to us with a word with some encouragement or, or working in their gifts, we need to look at it and say, what is the Lord saying through this person, not as what is the Lord saying through this man or through this woman. It's through this person because the Lord is no distinguisher when it comes to gender, when it comes to working through his power in and through our lives. Mm, you know, I've had to face some pretty harsh criticism um, as just because I'm a woman as a leader. Men, um, you know, and it's unfortunate because a lot of men wouldn't have been faced with the same criticism. I've been especially told that I really need to back off and just be supporting Craig with what he's doing more. But what they don't understand is that Craig assures me that I'm doing that just by leading here. I've been told I'm too bolshy and then I'm too soft. I've been told that I'm too emotional. And then next, I'm too cold and unreachable. I can't win. Um, But did you know? I actually don't have a name. I'm more often than not introduced as Craig's wife. And people don't mean it. I know that. But I'm Craig's wife. I actually don't have a name. Not that, you know, it is an honour to be Craig's wife. But yeah, I don't have a name. <laughs> and but did you know that too that some of the biggest hits are, where the biggest hits have come from? Some of the biggest hits have come from other women. Ladies, we can be really nasty, critical, jealous beings to each other sometimes, can't we? Yeah, admit it. Men don't make any comment. <laughs> we get so threatened by each other, and I'll let you into just a couple of little personal um, difficulties that I've had to come. They're just simple little things, but they make a difference. One thing I've had to come to terms with is that I am owned by other women in the church. For example, they own my hair. I get comments about whether the style I'm sporting at the time suits me or not. Quite a number of years ago, I decided to um, dye my hair dark, and I went quite dark. And, oh, my goodness, the response I got from the woman in the church was amazing. They hated it. (laughs) And, boy, they had no qualms about telling me their truth. (laughs) 
it wasn't, it wasn't, I had actually one lady come up to me and she says, oh, Michaela, what happened? It's terrible. Did something go wrong at the hairdressers? Yeah. But it wasn't actually until Craig finally confessed that he really struggled with it because when he'd wake up in the morning and see this dark-haired woman next to him in the bed, he got a fright. It was then that I decided I needed to change it back. <laughs> they own my clothes and what I should wear and what I shouldn't and what weight I am at any given time. But I decided that a long time ago that if I took all this on, it would slowly kill me. I needed to see things from a different perspective. I decided to believe that all these women meant the best for me, that they loved me and cared for me greatly. And I really believe that. And I choose to see it in a cup half full way, with graciousness and not to respond in kind. Ladies, over time I learned that I can minister as a woman with my womanly talents that God has blessed me with. But too often, we as women tend to try and compete with each other or try and compete with men into these roles. We try to focus on being masculine and can often be seen as being bossy, authoritative, defensive, emotional, and too pushy. But I can minister out of my femininity. As with Deborah, God has given me permission to speak honestly and yet lovingly, lead kindly yet strongly, and most importantly, how to live, love, and lead willingly. You know, as women, we need to think about how we're lifting up other women. Or are we so threatened that we can't help ourselves but bring each other or other women down, and often those who are successful? Woman, let's decide at this church at BBC, to be kind to one another. Let's lift each other up and be each other's champions. Encourage the gifts in everyone, no matter how different we are from each other. If you're struggling with that, maybe you need to overcome some barriers that other people have put in your life. Or maybe you've got some barriers that you yourself put in your life. We need to stop seeing the things we are not and start believing in the God that is. I really love that, that, that sentence. And we need to believe that God has created us as women to be women, moving with beauty, grace, and mercy that he's actually given to us all. Amen? Mm. Amen. Very good. Well, <clears throat> I shouldn't, but I get the last word. <clears throat> um, just because of the way it's happened. But the last word I'm going to leave to um, Joel the prophet and Peter the apostle, who said, when Pentecost fell, then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. He wasn't talking to women then specifically either. <laughs> no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. In other words, they will speak the oracles of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the revelation of God. And to me, that's one of the greatest revelations of Scripture, 
is to tell us that we're all in it together. And whilst there will be different roles that we play because of the giftedness that we have, this is not about calling each other to submission in ways that, um, that are actually uh, incorrectly interpreting Scripture. I know that many of you have been on a journey concerning the roles of men and women, and, uh, and maybe tonight has um, been a challenge to you about that. Um, we're not here to, to threaten you or intimidate you in any way, uh, because I know that a lot of the, the truths that are held on to uh, are defendable and hard won. And so therefore, tonight, what we've done is we've simply offered to you not only our story, but something of the story of this church, as we've wanted to celebrate what it is that God has done and is doing in the life of our community and beyond. And um, I just look forward to you know, seeing a whole new generation of young men and women leaders rising up and, uh, and celebrating what it is that God has put in their lives so they might be able to be the men and the women of God that they're called to be. Mm, Why don't we stand for prayer? <coughs> God, we thank you that male and female was your idea, a creation idea, a creation idea that somehow between us all, we reflect the goodness and the glory of God. An image that's held not by a male alone or a female alone, but together we reflect your goodness and your divine glory. And Lord, for, for us as a men and women, that means that we have a mutual submission, firstly to you. You are the Lord of our lives. You are the one who's created us for a purpose. And it is you to whom we submit first. And then we submit one to another, laying our gifts at the foot, the foot of each other so that we can be used to enhance and build and strengthen the body called the church. We collectively are your bride, male and female, coming together that we might be presented ultimately at the closing of all time before the great husband, Jesus Christ himself, that we, your church, will reflect your glory. And so, Father, we just want to submit what we've said tonight. We lay it at your feet, and we just pray, Lord God, that um, what is of you would find hold, find hold and find life, and uh, what isn't will just simply disappear. And that you, Lord God, will be glorified through what it is that we have spoken of tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.